My name is Percy Verlin, and this is Eleven Again. Recently, I've been talking to my friends about the things that they were obsessed with as kids, what they could not stop reading or watching or playing, or in this case, thinking about. Today, I am talking with my friend Tucker. He and I work together at Marvel. And when I asked him, he said he wanted to talk about the Iraq War. So I want you to go ahead, because this is sort of a weirder one. Wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> um, I also want to come completely clean. When I was a kid, I couldn't keep the like U.S. war in Afghanistan separate from the Uf- U.S. war in Iraq. Like I had a really hard time remembering the difference. Yeah, I mean that's the point, right? I think to a degree, that's a, that's something that I spent a fair amount of time thinking about in the lead up to this this is a whole kind of thing for me when with that really just began with the math of like what was i doing when i was 11 and 11 when i was 11 it was 2003 and uh in 2003 was the war in iraq that's when that started spring 2003 and i think it was a thing where i realized in hindsight only in hindsight, how kind of obsessed I was with all of that as it was going on. Not in a like rah-rah way, although I'm sure there were aspects of that for me, you know, farm town boy uh, from the middle of a very white town of 3,000 people. But... uh, Looking back to where that began, I think that definitely began, that obsession began, like, I think with 9-11, for sure. Do you remember where you were on 9-11? Yeah, absolutely. I was, you know, at school, and I remember, I think it was, like, only around lunchtime. That's the thing, I don't remember when lunchtime was. I was in fourth grade, and I remember my my mom's friend came and picked you know, it's a kind of cl- what has become the kind of cliched story about, you know, kids our age around 9-11 is like, you know, pa- parents come to get kids from school and bring home. And it was just very confusing. And then getting home and, and watching the news. And then I remember this is a very interesting memory to me. I was a pretty like sensitive child, I think, went upstairs to my room you know, middle of the afternoon at this point. And I built with blocks a kind of like replica World Trade Center. And I remember I had a little toy airplane and I like kind of, I was I was, al- I was always very obsessed with like creating little dioramas with like little miniatures and things like that. And I think I even, so I like set that up and then I think I even got a piece of paper and like a pencil and ripped out a piece of paper and wrote on the piece of paper, why W H Y question mark. And then like placed it there and kind of, I guess just sat and pondered it. You know, that was my, that's a weird thing that I've never actually talked about out loud, but that's a memory that I have. I don't know if like my mom or someone would, even remember that but i have that memory yeah i think 
this is also so interesting to me because even though I'm only like two years younger than you, I don't think I had any understanding of what was happening. It, well, that's the thing. Like, I think the dividing line there when you're that young is like so razor thin. You know what I mean? It's like it may it l- almost literally is overnight between like I think when you are logged on and when you're not. You know. Yeah, and I think in some ways my age group, specifically in our age group, generally is we are actually I think the youngest age group who remembers nine eleven. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I think anybody like a year or two younger than me probably doesn't remember it at all yeah. or has like mm-hmm. the faintest of memory of it. Yeah. And when people mm-hmm. are like, Oh, you know, kids these days, they don't even remember nine eleven. Like, what is that? <laughs> They're not humans. They don't remember nine eleven. And I'm like, Yeah. A 24-year-old probably doesn't remember 9-11 anymore. Like, it's, yeah. we've really yeah. aged through it. So tell me more about, like, everything. What your family was like. And also, so three things. What your family was like. How you realized, in retrospect, how actually obsessed you were with the events. And yeah. then bring me back to sort of, like, how it felt for you at the time. Yeah. So I grew up in like a very kind of, I always say that, you know, I'm from New Jersey, but I, at least in the national cultural understanding of places, I feel like I relate more to Missouri or Iowa than the New Jersey that I think most people think of when they think of New Jersey. I think when most people think of New Jersey, they think of kind of just over the river of New York and, um, and everything that that comes with that more suburban life but i grew up in like true farm five different farms on my street riding behind tractors on the way to school uh horses literally tied up outside the little supermarket kind of thing only recently did i realize ha- how absurd that all sounds <laughs> to people by the way <laughs> like had a conversation literally like three weeks ago with someone who was screaming over the phone like with each of those kind of details like what (laughs) um uh so grew up in what felt like definitely kind of a agrarian very white very homogenous very conservative town and i my parents had just gotten divorced so i was living with my mom mainly spending you know 95 percent of the time with my mom and I had an older sister and a younger brother. Uh, my younger brother was two at the time, three maybe. My older sister was a couple years older. Um, so looking back, I do feel like I had a relatively, at least as it came through my mom, a relatively unfiltered presentation of these things. You know, there there wasn't any fanaticism in either direction. It was just kind of a, oh, look what's happening. But with that, at the same time, not a lot of, of skepticism about these kind of things. Why I learned I was obsessed with these things is I just have so many different memories and just images in my head from that time. And only in the last few years have I really realized, and I think this is something you know, I think a little bit, really realized and embraced how much that era really shaped my brain. Really, in particular, the villains of like the early 2000s are like, you know, still kind of so, such a, a a quick touchstone for me in conversation or in like how I think of things. 
they're just like it's instinctual to to frame things in that perspective which is odd because i wasn't like a super politically literate child like one of those images is i remember in the kitchen there was a tiny little tv in the kitchen and i remember there watching or seeing the kind of famed pictures of the statue of saddam hussein being dragged down by the tank and kind of the like heroic world war ii like imagery of that you know and the kind of like the like victory connotations of that and all of those things i don't really remember what i thought of it but i remember that very well similarly i remember the mission accomplished speech which is among the greatest touchstones for me that is for a thousand different reasons i think this entire conversation could be based around that and how much that has impacted my understanding of things but also my sense of humor and um you know just george w bush in the like him landing on the aircraft carrier in a fighter jet and then getting out in the kind of fighter pilot regalia and helmet and then making that speech this you know what is now this super infamous speech all just like burned into my young brain all of those things so yeah i think it just was i don't know that's the other thing that i was kind of trying to think about is just like if everyone has a version of this you know what i mean everyone has whatever the the light switch was in terms of like maybe their adolescent consciousness you know what i mean beyond like child animal brain and then like having your burgeoning first understandings of the world or you know individual thoughts i don't know yeah so first before we go on we are i mean this one is obviously different for a number of reasons <laughs> but um we are gonna watch something uh yeah a documentary called the is it the unknown known or the known unknown um it's an errol morris documentary what is it called yeah the unknown known the unknown known, morris which yeah. is about uh donald rumsfeld that's right one of the series regulars <laughs> not even a, we're not talking recurring we're not talking guest star we're talking series regular donald rumsfeld secretary of defense um yeah it's you know it just feels like a good scalpel for for this discussion in terms of what was known what wasn't known what was deliberately obfuscated what wasn't all of that kind of stuff. Errol Morris has like a very particular documentary style as well, where I think he uses like a system of mirrors to make it appear as though the subject, the interviewee is looking directly into camera, which I've heard from friends who have seen this documentary really is unsettling. Yeah, um, it is. The documentary is from 2013. So we're doing a little bit of a 10 year jump here. But before we watch that and then talk more about this whole thing um i wanted to get a feeling as much as you can express for how you were like emotionally feeling about this news cycle or this event like at the time it definitely wasn't a sense of triumph and like kind of go get them attitude which is strange uh, that is strange because the community that I grew up in, I think definitely overwhelmingly was like that. And that's not me being like, oh, I was some 
you know, is this very insightful child because I just didn't understand and I was confused and feeling emotional, but not able to place those emotions as a kid. And, and so that kind of led to this lack of overt patriotism of the time, or if it was something a little bit closer to that in actuality, I don't really know. But I think that's part of what fascinates me about it. You know, looking back, it's such a, so I say it's such a time capsule in terms of this, like this coming together of, of these things of me being the kind of perfect age to maybe understand things a little bit, but not enough maybe feel things a little bit, but maybe not informed in the right way. And then this very like tumultuous period in, in American history, it all combined to be like this very strange soup that I still haven't quite figured out. And I think is what leads to me thinking about it all the time is because I'm still like exercising that in a way. Not because it impacted me in any way, like it impacted thousands of people in a real way, you know, I certainly didn't have a lot at stake, but I think it it definitely led to a lifelong fascination with this kind of subject matter. I also think it's funny because I don't think I had like a good understanding of essentially any of the events that were happening at the time. But the way that it affected me constantly was, you know, as someone who is ethnically ambiguous i used to have like kids like people my own age ask me like where i was from or you know what are you all the time and i would say um i'm iranian or i'm half iranian and they didn't even really know what that was again because i don't know we were 10 and i would always say do you know iraq or i think i would say iraq for their understanding and they were like oh yeah and i said it's right next to there yeah And that was, so this like worldwide catastrophic event became for me like an identity marker in a lot of ways. And I, I can't say that I thought much past that. I was like, this thing is famous. Right. And I am adjacent to it in some strange way. And that is the only way I can help people understand why I look the way I do. Which is like such a strange filtration system for the way it impacted my life in like a daily sense. Oh, completely. That's the weird crossing of the wires happening here in this very conversation (laughs) where it's like this, you know, this like little corn fed cis white idiot who felt, you know, an impact on this in a way. And then like, you know you talking about it in that way which is as innocent as like oh yeah like it's just like you know the, the you know change the letter they're neighbors kind of thing um in terms of how you think that i was so curious to hear to hear your thoughts on that in, in that same way yeah i none of it makes sense as as much as i can sit here and try and untangle all these wires it doesn't make sense and that's again the point yeah The other juicy nugget I have for you, which I don't know if I've told you before, but I was looking for like a a dress, like a fancy dress in my mom's closet my senior year of college because there was like some sort of formal event. And I found this really nice black dress. It was long. And I was like, oh, mom, this is beautiful. Like, I've never seen it before. Where did you get it? And she was like, oh, I wore it to the second to Bush's second inaugural ball. (laughs) Wow. 
And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I did wear that dress to my formal. I don't think I told everyone where I got it. Um, so you said, and guess who went to one of the inaugural balls? <laughs> this dress, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the other thing I didn't really understand about inaugural balls are apparently there's like a bunch of them. There's not just like right. one. So I don't know. There's like minor inaugural balls. Um, but that is just sort of a small drop in the bucket of the pool, which is the fact that my mom did vote for Bush, I believe, oh, yeah. twice. Yeah. Um, which is kind of crazy because we're generally a Democratic family and that's always sort of how I have thought about it. But in a weird, and this is like, I think, so, such a weird issue, but my mom essentially voted for Bush because my mom left Iran in 1979 because of the Islamic Revolution, and she thought that if Bush was going to invade Iraq, he would invade Iran and overturn the Islamic powers, right? essentially making it back into the, like, Shah-controlled modern society that she grew up in. Yes, it's just like something that's now kind of like a familial joke. You know, that's a thing that, yeah, that, 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 that's a thing that, that's like a dynamic that you, you know, I think happens relatively regularly with like Im- immigrant parents, at least. And then like in discussion with like our peers and our friends who are the children of, of like these immigrant parents or their immigrant grandparents or whatever who end up having these kind of views are like born out of that, are like born out of like this, per- this, understanding or perception of like the kind of like government regime that they despise and then seeing like American red, white, and blue, like freedom touting machine being like the opposite of like the, the great eradicator in that way, whether that's Cuba or Iran or whatever. It's, it's a dynamic that I've, had a, a bunch of conversations about and again not something i claim to understand remotely but it is interesting it's yeah. very very interesting it's a very specific nuance yeah like i i didn't know about at the time i mean i don't think i even understood i don't know people vote sure but i wasn't like 2004 i would have been 10 i don't think i was asking my mom who she was voting for and uh yeah so uh let's watch this documentary and then we can talk more about uh, your everlasting love for the villains of the early 2000s um, and regroup. Yeah, let's go drink some blood. <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you later. Let me put up this next memo. You want me to read this? Yes, please. All generalizations are false, including this one. There it is. Rumsfeld survived Watergate with reputation intact. Possible vice presidential running mate with President Ford. Questions about Rumsfeld are whether he's too ambitious playing second fiddle to Reagan. The credit belongs to people who are carped at and criticized and, and said, oh my goodness, you're warmongers. And we need to understand how we got to where we are. Who do we want to provide leadership in the world? Somebody else? When Shakespeare wrote history, the motivating force was character defects, jealousies, etc., etc., etc. Maybe Shakespeare got it wrong. Maybe he had it right. 
Governor Reagan decided to have George Bush to be vice president. It seems to me that if that decision had gone a slightly different way, you would have been future president of the United States. That's possible. How do you think that they got away with 9-11? It seems amazing in retrospect. Everything seems amazing in retrospect. Stuff happens. Free people are free to make mistakes and commit crimes and do bad things. They're also free to live their lives and do wonderful things. And you have to pick and choose. Well, to the extent you pick and choose and you're wrong, the penalty can be enormous. Subject, unknown knowns. That is to say, things that you think you know that it turns out you did not. So the one thing I wanted to say that really struck me about the documentary at the top is I thought it was just like a quirk of my childhood and maybe just like other people who were young during this time, the conflation between the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. But no, they like in the documentary, the I guess it's Errol Morris himself who's interviewing Donald Rumsfeld. And he asks him like, was it on purpose that you were conflating like Osama bin Laden with Saddam Hussein. And Donald Rumsfeld is like, Donald Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, I mean, he was kind of a lifelong politician, but he was the Secretary of Defense for Bush. He was like, oh no, there was no confusion about that. And the documentarian Errol is like, I can show you like surveys that were taken at the time which is that people thought that Saddam Hussein had like a hand in 9-11 so I don't know if that was like it seemed like they were trying to frame it as like a political scheme like that Donald Rumsfeld or other people in the administration were pushing that agenda so that it made sense after going into Afghanistan to go into Iraq but I think I always kind of assumed it was that the general American populace like literally probably thought Afghanistan and Iraq were like the same country and like can't tell the difference between the names Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein just because they're like foreign names. Do you know what I mean? So who knows what like what the cause really was. But I was just like felt very gratified that adults were having the same confusion that I was having when I was like six. Yeah, I mean, a, a, a million percent. And that's it's not a documentary about like what happened versus what didn't happen. It's kind of entirely a documentary about outside of an objective truth. How does one frame the position they're taking, you know, with regard to the, like how connected is Saddam Hussein to nine 11, et cetera, put, putting the war essentially right in the back of the war in Afghanistan to kind of, you know, frame it as a, a natural progression of what most Americans, at least at the time, thought of the first one as a just war, and then this one they knew was going to be a bit of a harder sell. Again, I agree, and who knows? That's what I mean by it's not it's not chasing the the facts so much of like 
who told the American public it was this way? Where did they get this idea from? Is it ignorance? Is it a specific thing that was said at the specific time of crucial moment, et cetera, et cetera? What, how, how were those crumbs laid? It's not about that. It's about, you know, it, it digs in specifically this documentary. It's kind of framed around his memos that he would write to the Department of Defense in the Pentagon. And it very quickly becomes a, not just a discussion about like I said, the subject matter, but a meta discussion about how he would discuss the subject matter. And so much of that was down to literally him asking for dictionary definitions at the time, writing memos, asking his assistants or whomever to give him dictionary definitions of certain words. And, you know, him looking down, you know, at the fourth definition of a certain word and saying, oh, we have wiggle room there. We can fudge the numbers there with this definition of this word. And so much of of it is about terminology and the way that he directed the Department of Defense to talk about these things. And it's not about the facts of who said what and why they said it and saying, no, 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 you're lying right now. That's not what you said. Sometimes that pops up, but it's more about saying, you know, that the, the, the reframing of these things is is the most revealing aspect of it in and of itself. Yeah. It was also, I mean, I guess I didn't know that much about Donald Rumsfeld at all as a politician. I would hear his name and be like, yeah, that's a guy, that's a politician. But the reason the documentary, I think, works is because he kept, like, the most copious amount of notes and memos about everything he did and just like communications to his staff. So the way they describe it is like they just have like so much material of his that they can actually go through and see what he was writing at the time. The documentary is mostly about him, I think, as a figure. And even in the documentary, he's like, I don't know where I got all this fucking stuff. Like the amount of words I put to paper, who knows where I was... Like he kind of is almost shocked at himself. Yeah. That he would even put all of this down and how much he put down. He was just kind of like, I don't even know half of the things I said. Like, who knows why I was saying these things? Well, that that again is, you know, this ties very closely to where the documentary kind of digs back into. It starts a little bit in media race, then it goes back into his early career as a politician working with Gerald Ford. And then, you know, when Ronald Reagan took office and first and foremost working in the Nixon administration and how... You know, I think that foundation for this documentary and for the story of this figure is so vital because there's a big discussion at that point of surveillance and the Nixon tapes and all of those things. So, you know, he as a young person in his first kind of senior role in American politics or, you know, kind of lower mid-level role in the White House itself is kind of framed from the very beginning. The seeds of it are framed by, you know, the the greatest, you know, scandal of in American presidential history of a president being so hyper aware of how he's perceived and his enemies, both internal and external and controlling that and controlling the messaging of it. Ultimately, it was his downfall. But I think Donald Rumsfeld got to learn from those mistakes. And I think Instead of saying, like, here's the objective truth in a tape of what the conversation was, he's able to take control of the narrative with his memos and say, this is what I was thinking at the time. This is 
this is what I not just want to communicate right now, but this is what I want people to know I'm communicating or that I communicated in the future looking back. And I think, I think he's so, so, so aware of those things. So that the folksiness that you're kind of talking about there, I think there are maybe five times in the documentary where Errol Morris chases him to a point and it's not a kind of tete-a-tete crossfire back and forth where he's really trying to get him. It's more of a open conversational thing where he, like I said, he kind of allows these his subjects to chase themselves there where there's a, there are maybe five points where he's kind of out of options in terms of how he frames something that happened. And that's where he'll rely on the softer power of saying, uh, who even knows? You know, uh, there, there's so many different, there's so much footage in this documentary of him at um, uh, press briefings in 2002, 2003, right? When all these things were happening and he's so skilled at talking to the media. He's so, he's got a certain charisma. He's making jokes. Ultimately, it's just this documentary is entirely about his control of his image in history. And I think that the documentary as we keep talking, it, it keeps coming back to that theme and including the very end, it lands on that note. Yeah. Aaron Morris asks him like, so why are you talking to me right now? Why did you even accept yeah. this interview? And I think he just says, I don't know. He says, that's a vicious question. And he kind of laughs and he says, I don't know. That's another one of the moments where I think Errol, no, Errol Morris, again, so cleverly, I think so obviously well-researched, knew that this wasn't a subject, this wasn't a documentary about what happened versus what didn't happen. This wasn't a documentary directly about what was your intelligence on weapons of mass destruction versus this is what actually happened. It's a documentary about the soft power of all those things as opposed to the kind of military decisions he might have been making or something like that at the time, more governmental, harder power decisions that he was making at the time. And him saying at the end, you know, I don't know is another folksy out that he gives himself because we all know. I think it's very clear why he's doing this. It's another attempt to control the conversation. It's another attempt to frame himself in history. I think something that he has an incredible command of is there's no such thing as truth. There's only power. And that's it. Truth can be whatever he wants it to be. So that was a little bit of my frustration with the documentary. I mean... I don't like really blame it for that, but I kind of just wanted them to be like, this is actually why we went into Iraq. But I don't think anybody really has an answer for that, which is like everyone knows the yeah. wrong reason we went in. But like, I feel like no one really knows the actual reason we went in, if that makes sense. And they definitely yep. don't. They, I mean, they don't Completely. expand on it at all, because like you said, that isn't the focus of the documentary. That's kind of the question that's begging. And I totally agree. And it's in. That, that is something that I was thinking about a lot and I was taking notes for our discussion here and that was, it takes up like half of my notes is that exact question, even despite the fact that it's not actually directly asked in the documentary. There's so many people I think in history who fall into this category of knowing there's no such thing as truth, there's only power, knowing that, um, knowing how to wield that power effectively, but I really just think there are people who, for no reason at all, just because they like to, like, will defend the powerful. I mean, you see it in Twitter interactions. You see it in, you see it online. You see it in discussions every day where you 
you you might say something skeptical about a CEO or the president or whoever it might be. And there are just people that will come out of the woodwork to say, well, he's actually a really good guy. And he's working really hard. And, you know, I think it's wrong to, to, to say that he's doing this or that he's actually not a good guy. So my theory about this, and I've, I mean, I didn't make this up, but I've read this somewhere and I think there might be something to it. I think it's particularly Americans believe that they're all billionaires in waiting. And so when they see who they want to be attacked, yeah, it does. It feels like, well, I'm going to be like that very soon. I'm going to be that fucking successful and powerful and like also maybe an asshole, but I'm going to be that guy. And so like, yeah. why would you tear down the thing that I'm working towards? I completely agree. That's a passive example. You know what I mean? Because we're talking about or, or, or maybe a secondary example of people who are not in power, but who are perceiving those in power or defending those in power or perceiving themselves as maybe one day being a person with power. But in this discussion, as regard to, you know, with regard to the documentary or Donald Rumsfeld, it, it is so, I think the dynamic is exactly the same though, but instead of reply guy defending Elon Musk, it's Donald Rumsfeld defending and working on behalf the of the hegemonic influence of the United States throughout the world. And whether that might be, you know, there are historical examples of, of, of that happening across the planet, especially places where people without lily white skin live. And I think this is the just the perfect example of that. So I think if you transpose that dynamic of someone who's just saying, this is my avenue to power and why am I doing it? I'm doing it because I'm part of this broader machine and I'm and I want to fight for this broader machine, despite the fact that, you know, Donald Rumsfeld was, you know, in between his time in politics was like running pharmaceutical companies as if he could be more of a, a bloodthirsty <laughs> cartoon villain. You know, he was going to be fine no matter what, you know, but I think it's just that same thing of, of someone just devoting themselves to this, you know, powerful thing, whether that's a person or whether that's uh, a country and the political influence of that country. Right. And the other thing, like you were saying, I mean, he was like a had prospects outside of that position. So when they were talking about the issues with Guantanamo Bay and the sort of like press that was coming out about that, he talks about how he offered his resignation like twice, essentially. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, he's like, I was trying to be this. He, He was like, I believe in taking responsibility. You know, he was trying to offer some offer himself up as the scapegoat. And eventually he does. I'm not exactly sure what happened. He does step down or he does. He was essentially forced out. Yeah. You know, at the end of it. But I think he was happy to go at that point. Yeah. He definitely sort of mentions or like skirts by his relationship with the press. Yeah. But I found it super interesting. He was very dismissive. Like Errol Morris would ask him about shock and awe. He's like, how Mm -hmm. did the words shock and awe come to be and i feel like whenever don rumsfeld gets asked and even when you know they play the clips of him talking at like briefings or whatever he's like oh i don't know like i just said one thing and they just like took it and made it such a big thing they just ran with it you Mm -hmm. know he's like who knows why they make the decisions they do they just they're like chickens with their heads cut off but it's Mm -hmm. obvious that it's i think he just sees it as like a tool you know the press is just like he's a cat and the press is a mouse and he's like playing with it and then lets it go in a certain direction. Totally. Yeah. In some ways, even though I don't remember this 
this era so well, it made me nostalgic for the like traditional political villain that is like Mm -hmm. very well spoken and well read and has a long political career and a long military career. And just like, you know, you see him up there with the press, like fencing, you know, he's playing poker. Yeah. You know, I, it was just so interesting to see him know where to push, where to pull, where to put his hands up and kind of let it go. Because, you know, there's one point that shows footage of him, you know, decrying the, the, the front, you know, page of a newspaper he read that morning saying, death and destruction, civilian outcry, you know, so, so much, so much kind of negative press. And he's saying, no, what we're doing here is we're giving these people freedom. We're giving these people um, liberation, you know, and with that comes the ability to make bad decisions and commit crimes. But with that also comes uh, the ability to live their lives and do wonderful things. That's so interesting because that is him really leaning in and really using this tool in a very, in a very, you know, he's using a cleaver there. He's really going for it because he knows that when it is so starkly presented, he needs to present his version of it in a very stark way. Whereas when he's joking back and forth, where he's saying, oh, I'm not going to answer that because I just gave a great answer to that previous one and I'm done for the day. Thanks, guys. You know, like these very kind of like, you know, the, the joke, the smile, that is as, you know, crucial to his tool belt as, you know, really going out and laying into them because, I don't know, it, it's 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 pathetic because it's so, you know, his castle is built on sand. There's like, the I think it's so telling, there's like memos called, memos called common terminology where he says, these are the words we're going to use as the Department of Defense to describe X, Y, Z. And when he gets to dictate that, he gets to dictate the words that are used in the newspaper, the words that go out to the people. He knows that they're aware of how it feels and his ability to control that and control the public reaction to this kind of thing, control the public buy-in at the very start is what the whole thing's about. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you if this documentary like brought anything back for you, if there was anything that like came to you anew or afresh. Well, not in terms of like particular images or references, but in terms of the 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 facade that was built and then the decay that it was plastered over, absolutely. Like it was just a remembering the version of events that I remember just taking as like that's what's happening and then seeing ultimately the effectiveness of his ability to control the messaging to, you know, make these decisions in a, in a crafty way and at least getting in, selling the American public to it, making this happen to begin with, making that a success. The getting out part, most infamously, I think, is something that is way less easy to control. But yeah, in, in terms of that dynamic, I was like, I just made me sad you know yeah um so i guess my other question is i think like any piece of media the stuff that you were like hanging on to was a mixture of characters like donald rumsfeld and dick cheney and george w bush and images and also like words quotes speeches etc i was wondering like what i feel like we didn't really hit it but i feel like i mean even just being in an office with you like i just want to know more about like the things 
that have continued to like bounce around in your brain from this period of time? Yeah, it's, I, I like, I, I went and a good example of that is my like custom emojis in Slack where I went and on my own made emojis for like almost all major officials in the Bush administration at the time. Um, because they all kind of re- represent very the slightly different flavors of evil to me. <laughs> give me a for give me an example. I don't know. I, I, all of these are cartoon versions, so I don't know how insightful this will be. But like Dick Cheney is for me the um, the Machiavellian, like perfect Machiavellian, but maybe slightly more obvious, belching, grotesque villain. You know what I mean? Who is scheming and you know in his lair. And then there's Donald Rumsfeld, which I think is like a slightly, he's a slightly more to what we were talking about. He's a more media friendly version of that where he's got, he's got the jokes. He can relate to people in a little bit nicer way. He's a little bit less of a loner or introvert. And, but you know, ultimately his output is very similar. Connelly's rise, (laughs) I think is more like, she's more of the kind of um, like erudite evil who's like a little bit quieter and less like blustering than the the two I previously mentioned. Um, and then you have like Ari Fleischer, who is press secretary, and he's like the spin master. You know what I mean? If someone writes, to put it in how I actually use it, if like someone writes something that is like smacks of like, oh, nicely reframed, you know, this like thing that was a total failure, but we're going to say like, oh, it's actually, if you put it in this light, it's actually not that bad. Boom, our Fleischer. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, say sorry. Say real quick, like what your job is generally. Uh, I'm an editor for a website, so I write and and edit things, and they go out and people read them or don't read them most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're talking to other people who are like writing for the website, sure, or like you know reviewing how people received something, a piece of information, or like how that was perceived by the by you know readers or fans or whatever it might be so i have a question so when you're sending an ari fleischer emoji on slack at work um did do you have to explain every time why you're sending <laughs> have they caught on no. or <laughs> no i think i'm i think maybe except for one or two people with whom i directly talk about these things and say like oh that is totally a like an Alberto Gonzalez move, um, uh, who, you know, who the, the, that kind of reference will mean something to. Yes, I do have that. But 98% of people, absolutely not. It's just a, I guess, kind of a faceless political figure. Did you sort of like notice that it was like a shtick with you that you were like knowledgeable and still bringing up a sort of past political guard? In like modern parlance or you were just like, haha, funny time. It started happening and it wasn't just this. It wasn't just the Bush administration. It was like a certain time. It manifests most often in, you know, all honesty, but probably a gross way in my sense of humor because these things are so not fucking funny. But, you know, those older references were talking about like the 1970s, you know, or something that are talking about Iran-Contra. A lot of it's political, but... It was the thing where I would, I just found myself talking about these things or in particular found myself talking about this era, you know, the early 2000s a lot. And it really very quickly led me to realize just like, oh, that 
you know, I think that's part of the, the conversation, the very reason we're having this conversation. You're exactly right, is because it made me realize, oh, I really came online then. I really started to think about the world, or at least the world was registering with me at that time, and why. And the answer to why is, well, I guess it must have had a really big influence on me. Yeah. Yeah. Because I more than once, you know, have heard you say it like, W. <laughs> <laughs> um or said you know fool me once you know we're like walking around yeah our office doing george w bush impressions oh that 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 in particular there's someone i don't know who it was in our office who made one of the funniest jokes <laughs> i've ever seen and i don't know who did the joke and i've been dying to find out for at least a year now there was in the office kitchen, there was a jug of like vaguely yellow liquid, an unmarked jug, yeah. <laughs> a gallon jug of yellow liquid that someone left there and was like, have some. It was clearly left like near the cups to be like, go ahead and drink it if you want. <laughs> and someone in response, like, and I, so I saw that and then like an hour later, I came back and saw that someone else had left a sticky note on there that said, you know, fool me once. <laughs> Uh, shame on me, fool me twice, can't shame, get shamed. You know, it just essentially laid out the the George W. Bush yeah. like folly in using that phrase, <laughs> essentially to say, I've I've been tricked into drinking piss before, but you're not gonna make me do it again. And I ripped it off of that jug of whatever that liquid was, and I brought it back to my desk, and I laughed about it every single day since. One of the funniest things ever. <laughs> I think it was just <laughs> lemonade. Well, of course, but that's, I think it, that actually does combine two of my greatest like areas of things I think are funny, which are, um, piss jokes, the Bush administration and piz. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> too great. Hall too great. <laughs> um, okay. I just want to say, I'm sorry to my listeners, this is not usually the kind of content we do, but in my defense, I was an international relations major in college, and I never, Hell got, yeah. I never got to do anything with it. Yes. <laughs> I'll come back and talk about Attack of the Clones. Okay. Yeah. Do you, do, you, do you want to do an episode with Patrick together? Patrick, my neighbor, who I went over and, and talked to him about his episode of this podcast. Did you really? I, yeah, I did. I was like, Space Jam, directed by Joe Pitka. I like I gave I like literally brought him a, a cup of sugar or something like a good neighbor does. And I was just like, hey, what, what? How about that? He was like, I did mine on Space Jam. What are you doing yours on? I said, what's the opposite of Space Jam? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm doing mine. On. <laughs> um, but anyway, thank you. Thanks, dude. I hope you have some clarity about your life and the circumstances under which you were brought up. Yeah, I'm going to get up from my reclining position on this couch now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, therapist. <laughs> All right, bye.